Natalie, since you are hosting, would you like to start us off? Oh, I forgot that I am the host now. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back to Unleash the Goats. Um, we are talking about the prequels today. That's... We'll get into it. <laughs> I'm Natch. She, her. I'm Angela slash Faye sometimes. Uh, she, her. Uh, I'm Sugar. Also, she, her. I also want to put out there, if you are just coming into Star Wars, this is not the podcast for you. We are not spoiler free. We talk about all the things. I do want to establish that we are not going to spoil Ahsoka today. We are letting people actually watch the show as it comes out. Correct? Correct. Yes. I say that as if I have the ability to spoil Ahsoka. I can tell you about the first episode. I was going to say, yeah, as the one person here who hasn't seen everything that's come out yet. Yes. Don't spoil it for me, because we'll have a whole episode to talk about it. Yeah, you totally (laughs) haven't been watching all of our reactions in the Discord channel at all. Well, the great thing is that I don't know what they're in response to. That's a fair point. So it kind of goes over my head. Also, I have been very focused on watching the prequels this is for the true. first time in probably 15 years. We're so proud of you. Thank you. I worked really hard. I was going to ask how long it had been. Have you only seen them once before this? Um, No. So my brother was... What's funny is that as I was watching them, I could really tell where we had watched these movies and where we hadn't. Phantom Menace was like a little familiar to me. Um, Attack of the Clones, very familiar. The first scene where they're chasing the bounty hunter, like, sequence, Mm -hmm. that was super familiar to me. Um, Everything else was kind of like, okay, I kind of know this. And then as soon as we got into the scene on Geonosis, is that the name? You're right. Yes. I'm so smart. Um, As soon as we got there and, like, the little, like, beast things came out to, like, kill them, I was like, oh, I know this scene by heart. So this is the scene that my brother must have like rewound and rewatched over and over and over again. And then Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith was completely unknown to me. (laughs) I was like, I know these lines from Obi-Wan, but I don't like I was watching the scenes and I was like, this reminds me of the Lego Star Wars game that we would play. But I don't remember the movie itself. All right, so that establishes Natch's level of familiarity (laughs) with the prequels that we are going to be talking about. Thankfully, it is relatively fresh in your head. Yes. Um, I did put in here Natch's thoughts about the prequel trilogy, since you have just recently rewatched them. Um, Mm -hmm. So this was in lieu of giving your not-so-brief recap of the entire (laughs) trilogy. Um, a lot put, happens. A lot. It is. Yeah, we'll get to that. But <laughs> I put down a couple of questions. I didn't know if you wanted to answer them. I just was going like, did you have a favorite film out of the three this time around? Any favorite scenes? Overall impressions? Was it better or worse than you remembered or expected it to be? Ooh, interesting. I want to say that Phantom Menace was actually my favorite. I think because I love Qui-Gon. And that's all we get of him. Mood. And... I spent a lot of the other two being frustrated with Anakin. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get that that's the point, but baby Anakin was the most enjoyable for me to watch. You have such valid opinions, Nash. 
Ah, oh, thank you. Um, what were your other questions? <laughs> uh, if you had a favorite scene, um, and like, was it any better or worse than you were remembering or expected it to be? Um, it was definitely better than I remembered. Um, I was surprised at how much happens. Because in my head, I'm like, you do this, and you do this, and you do this. And then I watched them, and, like, seven things happened in between each of the plot points that I remembered. Which is why my summaries are so long. Is because I was like, but I don't remember this happening. Is it important? Not always. (laughs) Not always, but, yeah, we'll get to that, the whole idea that there's, there's a lot happening in the prequels that is actually plot relevant, but it kind of just flies by under the radar. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think favorite scene. Um, it's hard. There's a lot of good scenes. Because I just watched Revenge of the Sith, I the scene where Obi-Wan is going after uh, General Grievous, like that whole sequence, fucking loved that. Uh, on Utapau? Y- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you totally remember the planet's name. I re- okay, because they're there and they don't talk about why they're there, but they are like, "Hey, we're going to get all of the separatists over like to Mustafar." Which is maybe how you say it. Yeah, that is how you say it. But Ugh, yes. Utopa is where um he's killing Grievous. Yes. Yeah, and then they're evacuating all the separatists from another place to be like, hey, you're going to go to a super special meeting on Mustafar. Like, the Palpatine wants to congratulate you on winning the war. Yeah. Right. And then they all get murdered. And then they super yeah. get murdered. That's actually one of my favorite scenes. I love when they all get murdered. Get fucked for being awful fascists. Okay. So we're to mostly today what we're talking about in the prequels is not all the prequels altogether because that we would be here for the entire day and... Nobody has time for that. So what instead we're talking about today are the themes and messages that are trying to be portrayed throughout the prequels and how they're portrayed in each of the films. So the first one is going to be how a good man becomes a villain, basically Anakin's fall, and then selfishness versus selflessness and how that's shown through different characters and different choices. And then finally, choice, agency. Where in these arcs did these characters have a choice and where didn't they have a choice? That's a lot that's happening. We're tackling a lot, but we're gonna we're gonna make it. It's gonna be great. Okay. All right. So in episode one, there is a big theme with the corruption in politics, with the trade federation and the rigged election, which doesn't shows a lot of like what how selfish the trade federation is because they are just putting all of their like money needs <laughs> capitalism metaphor anyone <laughs> metaphor. <ahead of> <laughs> When you say rigged election, are you talking about Palpatine becoming the Supreme Chancellor? Yes, because he is, okay. you know, he, <clears throat> we don't get to see him do most of the work that goes into this. But, like, uh, I think it's at least implied that Palpatine has basically been making a lot of friends. Also, the whole point of the Phantom Menace and the events that are happening are that Palpatine is setting himself up to become Supreme Chancellor by having the Trade Federation... <clears throat> attack his home planet um, so that he can, like, blame the current chancellor for not helping and use the sympathy vote to kind of get himself voted in and the other one voted out. Um, He kind of has to work around the fact that Padme shows up because he's he's very clearly 
trying to get her to die before she shows up and then sort of just takes advantage of the fact that she's there and has her do the vote of no confidence thing instead of him. But mm-hmm. like it's he, he gets the same result, um, regardless of Padme showing up or not. So it's it's a rigged election in the sense that like he's using this attack on Naboo to get himself maneuvered in and he's made enough friends <clears throat> however he's doing it beforehand to uh, ensure that this is a result that's going to happen. I mean, it's entirely possible that he has bribed and intimidated people into voting for him. Right, yes, when I say friends. <laughs> um, alliances. Alliances and, and yeah. whatevers. Yeah, that he's probably bribing and threatening. But he is also trying to come off still as like a generally friendly, good, like sweet old man at this point. So he might not be doing super overt threats at this point um that seems a little against the kind of politics he's going for uh within phantom menace but um unless he's like getting other people to do it without implicating himself which is possible he does end up doing that later uh, but he's also able to blame it on the separatists later and he can't do that yet so <laughs> anyway yeah that's the I... whole thing with the rigged election yeah i actually have a very important question that i was thinking about the whole time please ask when, like, coming into this, coming into the prequels, because they obviously came after the originals, um, mm-hmm. I know things about Star Wars. <laughs> um, do Like, are we meant to understand that Palpatine is the Emperor and, like, Lord Sidious? I mean, it yes. is the same actor um, who, who, okay. played, who played it. Um, so I feel like anybody who, like understood that it was the same actor would be able to put those things together even though i don't Faye, you might be able to know this better than i do i don't think he's ever called palpatine in the original trilogy yes people did know palpatine was palpatine um first of all george lucas told everybody in an interview people were like oh what's the phantom medicine he was like palpatine he's the emperor obviously so it wasn't like it was a secret (laughs) ah (laughs) Okay. <laughs> yeah, this was back before the days where Disney was like, nobody gets to know anything ever. Spoiler culture has ruined everything. What's funny is that watching it, knowing that Palpatine is the Emperor, because I didn't, like, I don't have the context of the original trilogy, really, and I just, like, was watching it at face value, basically. But mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, Palpatine is, like, obviously the Emperor, because that's a thing that I know, but also, like, you can very obviously see him put pieces into place. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it is a way more interesting story because you know the spoilers. It's almost like Disney should stop being so afraid of it. I anyway. believe the name Palpatine <laughs> itself comes from the novelization there was a novelization where he's mentioned in the prologue and they named him palpatine which Mm. came from george lucas's like giant timeline that he had so he was always named palpatine he wasn't named palpatine in the original movies but that was the name that was like known by fans uh, obscure fans probably the ones who actually read the book for about maybe 10 years before the prequels came out okay so it wasn't a new totally new name for people as well excellent there were people, I think, who weren't aware. Probably a lot of the kids, likely, who were watching the prequels. Yeah. You know, might have been less aware of that particular reveal coming. But um, most of the adults were likely a little bit more familiar with. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. You're welcome. We can move on. <laughs> uh, there's also some stuff in episode one. Obviously, uh, there's a big theme about the Jedi not being superhuman. Um, that they can be killed, which kind of... Um, 
obviously is going to lead us into uh, Anakin's stuff about killing them all uh, later. Um, you know that thing that he does. <laughs> the superhuman thing is actually really interesting because in the original trilogy, they talk a lot about Jedi as them being like myths and legends and like warriors of old. So like there is this myth that was built up of them in the original trilogy. And the only Jedi we see is Vader, Yoda, and Obi-Wan. So Vader, obviously terrifying, basically unkillable till the very end when he chooses to die. Obi-Wan chooses to die. Yoda dies at like 900 something and by choice, essentially. So they have this like huge middle school stuff in the original trilogy. Natural death, but yeah, but like you know, he's like ready for it. He's not like unprepared or anything like that. It's not like doesn't catch him unawares. Yeah, he's like I'm nine hundred. I'm ready. Yeah, exactly. So when we get into the prequels, <laughs> he starts off immediately. George Lucas does with saying, "Hey, Jedi are regular people. Guess what? They might have superpowers, but they can still die just like everybody else." Yeah, they can specifically that they can be killed. Yeah, I mean, and that's like the myth and legend thing does still come into the that movie because you've got Anakin talking about how Jedi are invincible and that these are the myths and legends he in particular has heard. Um, So we know that like that kind of mythos that we got from the original trilogy does still exist, but they've kind of allowed it to be an in-universe mythos in the prequels um, in order to emphasize like, no, Jedi can absolutely be killed. They're not invincible. We love them though. We still love them. Well, yeah, the fact that they are not invincible is one of the best things about them, quite honestly. When you learn that they are just, like, people and not, yeah. like, gods, it makes them much more, like, approachable as characters. Right. Not that you couldn't approach characters like Obi-Wan and uh, Yoda, obviously, but they do fit more to, like, the wise sage kind of thing. Right. Whereas, um, you get a, a little bit of a different <clears throat> view of them in this in this film. You know, you've got Obi-Wan being this kind of, like little brat honestly um through most and of it's the excellent and we love it <laughs> oh yeah and i mean he keeps that attitude throughout yes. the entire film it's not like yes, he doesn't he have does. moments of that in the original trilogy it's just a little bit more concentrated in the prequel films um yeah. than it was uh in a new hope but yeah we can move on to anakin and we can hit on this again more when we sort of analyze things a little bit more later but like anakin being this very young compassionate kind sweet child um as his sort of beginning was a controversial choice apparently um not something i would have picked up on as a child when i was watching this for the first time obviously but uh apparently no people were a little bit taken aback by darth vader having started out life as a normal kid (laughs) having started life being like oh can i pod race for you so that you can win money with, yeah. like, no ulterior motive, just, like, I can help you. So let me. Ugh, this is why I liked the first one so much, just because he's so cute and sweet and helpful. Yeah. And doesn't do any murder. <laughs> I mean, technically, he does sort of kill people in the pod race. Does he actually? I don't think he ever intentionally He does not does. directly cause any murder. You could argue, though, that there's probably some Nemoidians on that droid control ship. Uh, that he does help blow up. Oh, but... he super does. Okay, I take it back. He but does that's do not... some murder. But that's not murder. They are, like, in the middle of a battle. He is an enemy that's combatant. True. That's not considered murder. But he does technically get involved in killing people within the battle. But it's not 
direct. It's not murder. He is still the it's good guy. It's not murder the way that he murders people later. You're so yes. right. Um, it's not. It's not quite the same. But I, I do believe that he is more intentionally. Like I don't think he sees them, but I'm, I'm relatively certain there are uh, Nemodians on that particular ship, and it's not it's just a huge droids. Ship. It's yeah. a pretty big ship, so I'm, I'm, there must be at least one or two kind of up in the control area. But anyway, he is supposed to be very compassionate and very kind and very sweet, and this obviously does work through the, the theme of how a good man goes bad, which is kind of the main point of the entire trilogy, um, is looking at how a good thing or a good person can become corrupted. Um, mm. And we've sort of been hitting on it bef- uh, in the other two things we talked about at this point, but... Um, the parallel being made in the films is that the other good thing being corrupted is the Republic, and very specifically the Senate. Um, not the Jedi, like a bunch of people seem to think. The Jedi are not being corrupted. They have not already been corrupted. They do not fall because of their corruption. That's not how this works. Yeah, at um, no point in the prequels do we meet any corrupt Jedi aside from Anakin, who we see actively being corrupted by Palpatine. There are no others. Right. I mean, there's Dooku, but he okay. has also been corrupted by Palpatine. He is no longer a Jedi when yes. we meet him. He is a Sith. And he had left the Jedi Order long before he was, was corrupted at all. Yeah, he was disillusioned, but he was, um, Lucas has specifically stated he was disillusioned with the Republic and with the Senate, not the Jedi. He just felt that he could do more good, um, from a different position, but this wasn't the problem, the Jedi's problem. It was just the limitations that the Jedi, you know, have for the work that they do, you know, was something that he was choosing to let go of in order to do something else. It it wasn't, there was no real problem or um, uh, frustration with the Jedi themselves in his choosing to leave. He becomes corrupted sort of afterwards. But, um, yeah, so that's kind of the big theme. That's why we hit on the rigged election, right? Is that uh, the Senate is the thing that is currently being corrupted and twisted. And the Jedi, I think I've said this elsewhere before, but the Jedi I kind of see as like a barometer for the galaxy's health, right? So like the more Jedi there are, the better it's doing. The fewer there are, the worse we get, you know? So by the time you get to Revenge of the Sith and we have a fascist empire running things now, there's you know, effectively, what, two Jedi left, if we forget about all the survivors that have popped up in other things. Um, you know, there's there's Yoda, and there's Obi-Wan, and, like, Luke and Leia, who are not official Jedi at this point, they're just more sensitive kids. Um, but, you know, the Jedi have basically been exterminated, and the world goes into darkness, and it only starts to get better when the Jedi start coming back, you know, in Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. And so the the Jedi's destruction is a consequence of the corruption around them, not the cause. And more importantly, Palpatine playing people does make them victims. It does not make them stupid. Just because they trusted that the people in power who have always worked for them, that just because they trusted the system doesn't make them stupid. They were doing their jobs. It is not their fault that somebody manipulated them. Nor is it their fault that the system that they are trying to continue to fix and work with is falling apart around them. You know, um, it also doesn't mean, this is an argument I've seen too, it also doesn't mean that the system didn't work, ever, you know. Like, yes, the system is currently being corrupted and we do see that, but it doesn't mean that there is, like, 
no point where the system worked or that the system was um, inevitably going to fail, depending on which canon you're looking at, the Republic as a, as an organization worked for a thousand years at minimum and like 25,000 at a maximum, depending on your canon. That is a fucking long time. Especially given that a lot of the other, you know, governments that we know about that have cropped up since then have lasted like a couple decades at best, you know, Mm -hmm. before falling apart. So the system that the Jedi and the Republic have created was actually a good workable system, like right up until the end. Um, So I've seen the argument that like, oh, you know, the Jedi should have just left or the Jedi should have just realized that this, this system didn't work. And like, it's just not true. Well, in fairness, if the Jedi had left, that would have been better for the Jedi. But the purpose of the Jedi is to help the people of the galaxy. The Jedi would have been better off if they had gone off on their own and created their own little isolated temple and like chilled out over there. That is completely true. But the Jedi want to help people. So if that is their goal, they need to stay where they are and continue to try and help fix the system. If they just abandon it, then how are they any different from the Separatists who they're trying to fight? Yeah, or, you know, the Sith themselves. The Sith are trying to destroy it, but how does the Jedi leaving, you know, not just constitute them abandoning the problem? Like, they're, if they had, you can bet that the, the fans would have, you know, condemned them for just abandoning everybody, too. So, right. you know, they're just not going to win this regardless. But, um, yeah, it, it doesn't help anybody but the Jedi. So it looks selfish if they leave. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, the system itself appears to have worked up until very recently. Um, so it's not the Jedi's fault. It's not even necessarily the fault of the system itself that everything went bad. It was intentionally corrupted, which is obviously very important to recognize because it's the parallel to Anakin, who did not start out as an evil baby. He was not born cackling, (laughs) you know, and spitting lightning out of his hands. Like, he was a compassionate, sweet, kind child who does get corrupted later. Like, this was not an inevitability, and that's, like, a really important thing within the themes and messages of the trilogy, is that neither of these corruptions was inevitable. Both of them were good. Both of them worked right up until they didn't and the jedi's genocide is a consequence of these two this one person and this the organization um of the republic making the choice to be selfish and corrupt and greedy um because it's convenient or you know because they let their fears control them and whatnot and then we move on to episode two where it's been a jump of 10 years and I've seen some people talk about how, like, oh, Palpatine did this so easily. It took Palpatine his entire life to corrupt the Senate. His entire life. Palpatine yeah. was playing the long the game. The long game. He really it is. took him a really long time. He didn't just walk in there and, like, easily corrupt the whole thing. It took him a long time. It takes him, what, 12, 13 years to corrupt Anakin, constant, with re- really regular contact. Like, that's a long time. He put a lot of work into this. Whatever else I can say about the man, I do have to respect his work ethic because he was putting in the hours. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, we don't know exactly how far back it's gone. Like, I don't think we know exactly how long he's been a senator. I mean, people who are up on the lore of Palpatine might, but um, it's not specifically stated within the films exactly how long he's been in the Senate, you know? But, like, we know from Padme that you do have to go to, like, Senate school, you know, like, politician school on Naboo. <laughs> you know before you do that and she was in senate school at like 10 or 12 
you know. So this this could be a very, very long process for Palpatine. We know that he had a master when he was young. Uh, well, he has one up until uh, he kills him in Phantom Menace. But he had a master when he was about, he found him when he was about 20, I think, in his novelization. And so he spends the yeah. next, I forget how old he is in Phantom Menace, but 30, 40 he's years. he's supposed to be in his 40s or 30. Yeah, it's like 40 or 50, probably. Given that that's about how old the actor is. great so quickly. Anyways, about 30, 40, 50 years uh, hanging out, like just learning cis stuff and corrupting the Senate and working his little worms and everything. Like, he, he put a long time in. He was an apprentice for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, in fairness, probably was also working on a plan to get rid of pa- Plagueis. Um, but, uh, because I'm sure taking out a Sith Master is not an easy task either. No, um, which is... Oh, it's super easy. You just have to do it while they're in their sleep. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, Dooku spends... You just have to be planning decades. it for a long time. Like, poor Padme, yeah. who gets corrupted assassins sent after her. Yeah. Like, a lot. Like, a lot. That's, like, the whole second movie is Padme is being, like, trying to be assassinated. That's not how you would say that. People are trying to assassinate Padme. There we go. Yeah, Palpatine was trying really, really, really hard to kill Padme until she fell in love with Anakin. He was like, oh, shit, actually, I can use you, so let's keep you alive for now. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue into our little mini game because, uh... The question is, who's actually trying to kill Padme and why? Nice. Um, because it's not the obvious answer. Um, it is there. It is said in the film, but I'm going to... Faye kind of just gave her answer, but I'm going to let Nat answer this one real fast, since uh, Nat is the casual fan and has seen it first, or more recently. So Nat, who do you think has is actually trying to kill Padme throughout Like, the throughout... The movie? Yeah, like, who's the, like, the person behind it? Like, obviously you've got Zem Wessel and Django as the actual assassins kind of mm-hmm. doing the work. Um, but who is the person behind it who actually wants Padme dead? And bonus points if you can tell me why. Is it... I Okay, because in the, like, in the second film... Django is like, I was hired by, what's his name? It's not just the word tyrant, but it basically is. It's Tyrannus. Tyrannus, who's Dooku. He is. But at that point, Dooku is like under Palpatine slash Sidious's control. So I'm going to assume that it's Palpatine the whole time. And it seems to be Faye's answer too. Yes. Because... Padme is a very competent political person and, like, a political threat to him. That's my guess. And I think that's Faye's answer, too, just given what you were saying earlier, Faye. Well, I know that technically it's not Balbazine who requests it in the movie. What? It's that freaky-ass Nimodian dude whose name I forget, although the actor's really hot. But <laughs> he wouldn't be requesting it if it wasn't something Palpatine wanted him to do, like... It's it actually has nothing to do with Palpatine. So Newt Gunray is is the Nemordian. That's um, his name. Thank you. I was gonna say Nate, and that was incorrect. It was incorrect. You were real close though. <laughs> Are you um, talking about the Trade Federation evil twin people? Yeah. It, yes. Um, so okay. it is specifically the Viceroy. You would have known him more as the Viceroy. Yes. Um, so yes. So it kind of relates to that. 
in the sense that he presumably, I think he gets like arrested or something by the end of The Phantom Menace, um, and has since like gotten out of jail. He's teamed up, and Dooku has intentionally sought out the Trade Federation because one of the things Dooku is doing within Attack of the Clones, and presumably has been doing uh, beforehand, is trying to get the corporate alliance, which is the Trade Federation, the banking clan, and the techno union, to join his efforts to start the war, basically. He wants them to kind of be backing the Separatists uh, so that they can get the war started. And uh, what we hear Newt Gunray say is that he isn't going to join Palpatine unless... uh, He's not going to join Dooku. Very specifically, Mm -hmm. he's not going to join Dooku unless Dooku kills Padme. Because he's pissed off that Padme, when she was queen, you know, defeated him on Naboo during the invasion ten years ago. He feels like she humiliated him, she got him arrested, blah 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 blah. That's because she did. So... So it really has absolutely nothing to do with Palpatine. Palpatine could not care less. Newt Gunray is being asked to do this thing, and he is saying, okay, I'll do what you want, but only if you do something for me in return. I wouldn't say that Palpatine doesn't care. It's because they stopped trying to kill Palpatine after this movie. So Newt Gunray is obviously working with them anyways. So he has convinced him. So it's more that he was ambivalent about Padme's life. And he's like, yeah, sure, you can kill her if you want. It's fine. But then when she becomes useful to him because Padme is in love with Anakin and vice versa, then he stops him from killing her because Newt Gunray is still alive at the end of this movie and he's working with the Separatists. He is, but you could argue that, like, you know, Dooku gets pretty close. It's hardly Dooku's fault that, you know, Padme doesn't end up getting killed in on Geonosis. You know, he does put her up for an execution. And you can tell Newt Gunray is still really pissed off about this, you know, when the Jedi start coming in, or no, it's before the Jedi come in, I think it's um, when they're fighting the monsters and they seem to be winning. You know, Newt Gunray has that line, he's like, you promised me she'd be killed. And Dooku has to kind of placate him, being like, you know, just wait, just wait. And then, of course, you know, the Jedi come in, the clones come in, and things kind of go off the rails. Um, but, like, it is definitely, like, regardless of whether Palpatine is allowing it in the moment, he's not the one asking for it. He's not actively seeking it, because it really does not matter to him within that moment whether Padme dies or doesn't, you know. Um, he doesn't care if she's arguing not to start the war, because he knows he can start it whenever, like, regardless of what she cho- chooses to do. He knows that as soon as he pulls out the droid army and tells Dooku to start things you know, he's got the Senate under his thumb and the war is going to start. It does not matter what Padme does. Yes, it's it's arguable that he probably does have to like placate Newt Gunray later or has to ask Dooku to do it so that Padme stays alive. But also the war starts, which probably does distract Newt Gunray to some degree. I think also the implication that we're getting in the film is that he's like, Newt's already there. He's already working with Dooku because Dooku's made this promise. And Newt is basically just kind of pushing for this promise to be fulfilled. So yes, he's already working with Dooku. He's not, like, not committed. He's just, like, we have a deal. You're supposed to fulfill your end of it. Um, So it is Newt Gunray asking for Padme to be killed. Palpatine is not the one asking for this. Um, it's, It's not him behind it. It is Newt Gunray. That is fascinating. Yeah. And so that, like, rolls into the idea that there's a lot of weird political complexities happening in this in this trilogy Mm -hmm. and a lot of them go straight over people's heads 
you know, this, this, the whole thing with Newt Gunray never gets remembered. Everyone thinks it's Palpatine because it seems like the obvious choice, right? That Palpatine is aiming for Padme to get killed because he thinks that her politics are going to be a problem because that seems like the obvious way to go. It's not though. <laughs> like that's not actually what happens in the movie and whether it makes sense or not is, you know, debatable. I mean, I think the argument can still be made that he, her politics are a problem for him because he specifically sends her off to be hidden in the forest. So she can't vote against his war and he manipulates Jar Jar into voting for his war in her place. So her politics are a problem for him. They're just a, more of like a nuisance that he's trying to deal with rather than an actual issue. I don't, but he doesn't want her dead. I mean, he can send her off and like, he's taking advantage of the fact that, you know, Newt Gunray wants her dead, but he's, he's arguably more interested in getting her connected to Anakin than he is about eliminating her politics. I don't think her politics are ever really an obstacle for him, you know, because we know he knows that he can pull out the droid army and the clone army and manipulate the senate no matter what padme does or doesn't do right and i think that he like she her being a problem for him is not like she's not enough of a problem for him to be like i want this bitch dead like he has so many other tricks up his sleeve and i think it's like makes it kind of more interesting because it's very easy to look at the prequels and go palpatine is the villain and the only villain but like what is actually happening is way more complex than that. And he is using other people, but he is also like, like he's taking this viceroy and being like, okay, yeah, I will work with you. And like Dooku as my like apprentice will work with you because we want to take advantage of you. And that means like making negotiations like, yeah, we'll kill this person for you. I don't know, like, he is not necessarily directly involved with Dooku. I have no idea how much Dooku is doing just, like, on his own without being, like, instructed to do it. I have to imagine he has to get Palpatine's go-ahead for a lot of things. Right. Palpatine doesn't really seem like a chill boss. He does feel like a micromanager. (laughs) But I, I don't know that he's a micromanager so much as, like, big decisions do have to be run by him. It is still Palpatine's plan. And Dooku does have to always be doing Palpatine's plan. But I think, like, the day-to-day minutia and details are things that Dooku can kind of just manage on his own. Um, And in Clone Wars, we do see him managing things like, you know, the Separatist Parliament or whatever, effectively by himself. You know, that he's left to just do that, to just go to those meetings and kind of just keep manipulating the politicians by himself. So I do think that there's a certain amount that Dooku is doing effectively on his own. You know, um... Like, we can probably assume that hiring Django was Dooku's choice. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, Palpatine arguably did not give a shit about who was the clone base. You know? Like, mm-hmm. uh, we don't even know if the clone army was technically Palpatine's choice or Dooku's. Um, and I mean, Faye, I don't know if that's in the novelization. I assume not. But I, I don't think it's ever explicitly stated whose idea it was to make a clone army. Um, but we know that Dooku specifically is the one sent to hire Django, so you can kind of assume that Dooku at least made that choice. Um, but, um, yeah, I think big decisions are are run by Palpatine, but Dooku is doing a lot of day-to-day kind of detail stuff by himself. Yeah. Dooku does, like, all the, the, the personal HR crap, and Palpatine's like, wait, don't remember, (laughs) you have to... Make sure the money that you're paying for is itemized on your bill. (laughs) 
so that I have yeah, to well, pay for it. Well, he just steps in to go like, you are getting out of your britches. You're getting too big for your britches. Mm-hmm. Please step it back. And then we... Also bring me the Death Star plans. <laughs> yeah, the Death Star plans are very important uh, because I need them to blow up people. And it's only going to take me 20 years to build one mm-hmm. and then like five years to build another one. Yeah, like <laughs> I have to... Like, I don't think Dooku ran the execution via monster by Palpatine, one must assume. That pa- pa- Dooku probably is just kind of rolling with the punches here for that. Yeah. Um, you know, but that like he at this point probably is aware that Palpatine is probably not that fussed over uh, Padme or Obi-Wan dying. But you'd think that, like, Palpatine probably is not super about Anakin dying. So he maybe does not want Anakin to be executed via monster. Yeah. Which is probably so, why he essentially allows the clone army to be picked up by the Jedi right at that point to start off the thing. Like, all of that going off right at that moment worked out very well for him well except that palpatine wouldn't know that anakin is on geonosis because anakin is told explicitly not to go to geonosis he's on tatooine at the moment nobody knows that anakin and padme are going to end up there except for anakin and padme because padme does this on a whim and so you know uh, the only way palpatine would be aware that anakin and padme are there is if dooku mentions it like off screen before the actual execution happens which might might have happened but it doesn't seem to have any bearing on whether the clone army is picked up or not because at that point all they know is that obi-wan is on geonosis yeah it is interesting yeah. that padme is the one who chooses to go for obi-wan because yes obi-wan is her friend but also like she has a responsibility to keep herself safe and she is choosing to go after him anyways and they aren't that close like they haven't really spoken that much in the last 10 years so it's a really interesting example also, they don't of speak padme that much being... in phantom menace either yeah, exactly. They weren't. They didn't really talk that much. And so it's a really interesting example of Padme being pretty reckless with her own self and her own life because she can't stand to see somebody that she has even a minor responsibility to die on her watch when she has a chance to do something about it. Or even less than that, just someone that she has the ability to help, right? Like, mm-hmm. it could have been anybody. Or, to, you know, to be fair, it could be that she knows that Anakin cares, and so she's doing this kind of more for Anakin's sake than anyone else's. But I think it's more that, like, Padme is the kind of person who is, like, that person needs help. I happen to be able to give it. So I'm going to do it. You know, like, regardless of the consequences. Which is something that I think is actually one thing that her and Anakin are very similar in. Well, that gets twisted in Anakin a for lot sure. later, and he, like, no longer has that. But the desire to immediately jump in and be a little bit reckless and do something stupid that's going to like help and even though it might cost them their life is something that they both share even though people don't recognize that a lot in Padme because I feel like she gets portrayed as like very cool headed a lot of the time but she's quite Which reckless is really funny not. because because this film actually explicitly states the opposite yeah. during that scene where they're both heading off to, to do the refugee thing to go to Naboo and Obi-Wan's like oh I hope he doesn't do anything reckless and Captain Typho's like, I'm more worried about her. Yeah, like she's yeah. explicitly a quite a reckless person, and it's so wild that she gets portrayed as very cool headed in so much fandom because she's not. She is not the reasonable one. She's just as reckless as Anakin is. Mm-hmm. She's just as reckless, and I think you know you could argue that she is, in some ways, just as selfish and greedy in her attachment as as Anakin is. Like she doesn't let it turn her to murder, but I think that she is you know, her attachment to Anakin has just as much selfishness in it. 
um, yeah. in terms of why she's going for him, you know, that she's doing it because she's getting something out of it, you know, rather than because she genuinely cares about Anakin as he is. Like, I think both of them see each other as these idealized rosy versions of each other and not the reality, which is why she's so taken aback, right? And is why she sits there and pretends that he's not saying things that he is saying. Which is also why I think mm-hmm. the choice to take her coming to Mustafar with the knife was a mis- out was a mistake because having that be like the ultimate end, like her being willing and matching his energy and being willing to descend into murder for the good of the galaxy, whatever their twisted versions of that is, would have been a really interesting parallel for them. And instead having her be like the weepy mother, well, also works. It's not as good for her character itself. Nat, I don't know if you're familiar with what Faye is talking about. Do you want to give have a little more context for oh, that? Oh, so sorry. It sounds like a deleted scene or maybe a change. I do. I'm so sorry, friends. I do think we have a lot to talk about. We might have to do a whole episode on Annie Dalla later. That's fine. And we might that's, have to move on. Okay. <laughs> that's fair. I'm going to be uh, the harsh host here. That's fair. Um, we're, we kind of, this might be an easy segue into episode three then, because we're starting to throw ourselves there, um, and talk about Padme, you know, in the relationship. Um, but yeah, so we've got, you know, basically episode three as the conclusion, obviously, to the corruption that we've been seeing over the last two episodes, both of the Republic and of Anakin. We see the Jedi attempting, you know, one last big rush to try and uh save the republic and failing um Mm -hmm. not because of you know any wrongdoing or weakness on their part but just because you know they were betrayed by someone they trusted Um, i also will say that the jedi are not stupid specifically like in the very beginning they trust palpatine but like Throughout the entirety of the third movie, they are constantly like, we don't trust Palpatine, something is wrong. I'll also point out that we know that they are questioning politicians in general, that this is something that the Jedi all do, because like you've got Obi-Wan specifically telling Anakin not to trust Padme because she's a politician. And this doesn't mean that he thinks Padme's a bad person at all, but just that like politicians have agendas. Mm-hmm. That's just what being a politician means, that they have an agenda and you cannot trust that their agenda is the same as yours. You have to keep that in mind. And the Jedi all keep that in mind. And they would have that in mind for Palpatine, too. And I mean, you got um, Nat, you pointed out in your notes that like you've got Mace specifically pushing against Palpatine, trying to get them to be soldiers. Right. That he's like, we're keepers of the peace. We're not soldiers. So they're already kind of frustrated with what Palpatine is doing um, mm-hmm. with an attack of the clones, too. They don't know him very well in. Uh, Phantom Menace because he's he's just the Naboo senator at the time. He's not a, a chancellor, so he wouldn't have had as much interaction with them. But by you can tell by Attack of the Clones, they're not super fond. Yeah. And then by uh, Revenge of the Sith, after three years of war and everything, obviously, that does get expanded upon in Clone Wars, they're like, oh yeah, no, this guy is corrupt as fuck and has to be taken out. And I think that's something that also gets um, misunderstood sometimes with Re- Revenge of the Sith. I've seen a lot of people saying that, like, they go after Palpatine specifically because Anakin tells them he's a Sith, and that is explicitly untrue. Like, they are working on upsetting Palpatine just because he's a corrupt politician. Like, they are willing to go arrest him for being a corrupt politician. Yeah, him telling him that he's a Sith 
hastens their thing so they go to do it immediately and it means that they bring more masters with them they're originally planning on be i believe it just being mace and a couple of people but instead he brings all the top duelists to go arrest a sith lord they don't realize that the sith lord is like the sith lord i think they're like not they don't know the extent of his powers because they're all caught very off guard by the fact that he can spin through the air but yeah whatever he does a lot of spins in that fight. <laughs> he does. That's it's probably one of the sillier fights in the prequels. Is is that one because obviously Ian McDiarmid can only do so much. Um, but uh, I think actually that like all four of the characters who are going to arrest Palpatine seem to be there. They're already heading there to arrest him, um, and so arguably they are more prepared just because Anakin tells them he's a Sith. So they're like, okay, probably he is going to fight us on this one you know, um, rather than assuming that he's just this kind of dainty little old man politician who happens to be hopped up on power, uh, power trip. But, like, they're already on their way to arrest Palpatine when Anakin comes in and says, by the way, that guy you're going to go arrest, he's a Sith. Um, I think at this point they are assuming he's the Sith Master because there obviously can only be two, and I think they're aware that Dooku is probably the apprentice because, like, Dooku came in later and Maul was around before. I, I think that there, there is like there is this assumption. I think that the person they're going after is the master, especially given Dooku's uh, uh, comments to Obi Wan in Attack of the Clones that like the the Sith Lord is controlling the Senate. I was gonna right? say also there's the fact that he told them that he was the apprentice. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah, he kind of says like the master is in the Senate and is controlling things in the Senate. So by the time that Anakin comes in and says, "Oh, Palpatine is the Sith Lord." that we've been looking for, they know it's the master. Um, but yes, they seem to be caught off guard by just how powerful Palpatine is. Um, which to be fair, like you can critique that fight a lot, you know, in terms of like how quickly the, the Jedi are taken out. They go out like um, chumps. It's it, so sad. They, they go out like Except chumps. It's for really Mace. bad. Except for Mace because they just want Mace wanna... has a long, long, long fight all on its own. <laughs> He does, and, like, obviously this is done to just simplify the fight and to really, like, set up very quickly how powerful and scary Palpatine is, but it just comes off mm-hmm. a little ridiculous, and, like, the Jedi don't come off very well. And I think, yeah. like, you know, like, a better choreographer, which, no shade to um, the choreographer who did work on the prequels, who is, like, a legendary choreographer and obviously created all the other really good fights, but whatever happened in this fight didn't didn't get done as well as it could have. Like, I understand what they were going for, but it does kind of hit a little off, especially given that these characters have been expanded upon later to be, as Faye mentioned, some of the top duelists in the order. My boy Kit Um, Fisto deserved to go out better. I love him so much. My boy Agent Kolar also did. Agent Kolar (laughs) is definitely, like, I think in the comics and stuff that he's been in has been said to be, like, one of the best, if not the best duelist in the order. Um, like up there with Anakin and Obi-Wan and all that like kind of stuff it's you know it doesn't make any sense obviously that they get killed so quickly but you know the fight is what it is um but yeah that's one of those things that I think gets radically misunderstood by a lot of people is this idea that like they only turn on Palpatine because Anakin tells them he's a Sith when like mm, no like they're already they're already on it you know Anakin is the one who's only just turned against Palpatine (laughs) because he's a Mm -hmm. Sith you know um but yeah, so there is like some, we can kind of discuss like the interesting ass, well, interesting in that it's not necessarily done, executed as well as it could have been, that Anakin is still being shown as a good person at the beginning of this movie, that he's got 
like fun banter with Padme and Obi-Wan. Um, you know, there's some nicer moments that he's got with some of the characters, but he's obviously, he kills Dooku, um, in cold blood and, uh, you know, that you can tell that he's frustrated with the council still, la, 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 um, which, you know, you can tell what they're doing again here, but this doesn't work as nicely with the Tuscan massacre from the last film. (laughs) Yeah, it is really interesting when in both Attack of the Clones and in Revenge of the Sith, there are scenes with Anakin and Palpatine where it's just them. There's only like one or two, but there's scenes with Anakin and Palpatine where it's just them. And in the scenes, Palpatine is saying everything that Anakin is saying just in like vaguer tones. And it's really, really interesting to watch Palpatine say these things and then Anakin parrot them back later on in the movie to other people with a lot more feeling and rage, mm-hmm. like the, he has internalized them. And it's just a fascinating watch oh, yeah. of like how he like slowly becomes corrupted with these ideas where he's constantly fighting. Like, do I internalize what Palpatine is saying or do I internalize what the Jedi are saying? And he always chooses wrong. Even though I love him dearly, he always chooses <laughs> wrong. <laughs> he- Palpatine is very good at like the leading, not questions, but just like, let me plant this idea mm-hmm. in you. It sounds like what you're feeling is this. And Anakin's like, oh, that is what I'm feeling. Fuck. Anakin's so bad at <laughs> yeah. self-reflection. He never knows what he's actually feeling because he just believes what Palpatine tells mm-hmm. him. Yeah. And the Jedi are like, don't have the context of what he is dealing with. And so they're not in a position to help him. When Anakin goes to Yoda and is like, I'm having these nightmares about someone close to me dying. Yoda gives him advice. that's like not helpful because Yoda doesn't understand that Anakin has made a commitment to something that's not the Jedi. Like, which he he does not supposed to do as a Jedi. He, yeah. I mean, I'm going to push back that like the Jedi can help Anakin and they are doing everything they possibly can the problem they're is doing anakin, their best they're up against a lot with palpatine well, they're up against anakin keeping secrets in that scene in particular like that a lot too. of people have pointed out that like yoda is literally having to finish anakin's sentences for him in that scene because anakin is holding back so so much um yeah and um it's not even just that they don't understand that anakin's made a commitment to padme but that anakin is not saying i've had a vision of Padme dying in childbirth, you know? Like, so all he's saying is someone close to me might be dying. And the context they have is that Obi-Wan has just been sent off to go fight Grievous. And And so a lot of people point out with his pub and that they're just in the middle of a war in general. And so they're like, well, he's probably worried about Obi-Wan dying, you know, on this mission. Maybe a lot of people around him, a lot of the Jedi have died. And so he just goes like, people die there's not a lot we can do about that and the best you can do is remember them kindly but if anakin had been much more specific about his dreams which you could argue is something that he does in the last film as well with his dreams about shmi and his conversation with obi-wan about it you know that he's gonna get more specific help um you know like had he gone to yoda and said so i might have knocked someone up and i've got visions of that person dying in childbirth what are my options that Yoda might have come up with some more specific advice, you know, but like if all he's being given is vague problems, all he can give back is vague solutions, you know, like there's only so much he can do when Anakin is refusing to, you know, own up to things. 
Um, and the yeah. same is true with Obi-Wan. Like, a lot of people critique Obi-Wan's uh, dreams pass in time advice, but, like, you know, as, as best as he can tell, like, Anakin is having regular basic dreams about missing Shmi, you know, that are upsetting him, but he has no context for what's actually happening in the dreams. I mean, that's what we are assuming, because we don't actually know. Like, there is no, like, hey, this is what you're actually dreaming about. He knows he's dreaming about his mom, but we don't know if Anakin has told him or not. We're assuming not because it doesn't tell him anything else, but that is an assumption we are having to make, because they're not very explicit. They're not super explicit, but just if we're going off of what we hear happen in the films, Anakin doesn't say anything, and he intentionally switches the conversation so that he doesn't have to. Like, Obi-Wan is pushing for more information, and Anakin intentionally shuts the conversation down, because he doesn't want to talk about it. And we can probably assume that this is something he's been doing in any other conversation they've had about it. There's a weird theme with Anakin where he seems to be very ashamed of his feelings, both in the very beginning in The Phantom Menace when he refuses to admit that he's afraid and then continuing on into the rest yeah. of the films. And it seems like it's something that Palpatine both encourages and he encourages him to feel all of his feelings, but he also encourages him to keep them a secret. Like there's the scene where he's like, Oh, you remember what you told me about how what happened to your mother and the Tuscans? And like, there's an implication there that you only told me this because you would have gotten in trouble if you told anybody else. And like, this is like our secret that I have it over you. And it's like this weird theme where like, it seems like Anakin both doesn't know what he's feeling a lot of the time. Cause he's bad at self-reflection. And when he does know, he refuses to admit it because he doesn't want to, have anybody know that he is feeling things and it's such like an interesting thing for him to have especially as a jedi who where most other jedi seem very comfortable with their feelings that it's such it's such a cool flaw and i want it to be explored more but instead the clone wars is just like ha anakin that doesn't even have feelings what do you mean well he has feelings <laughs> it's just that his feelings are all anger and violence but um... those are not feelings <laughs> those are uh things that happen because of feelings that he was already having that's right. But those are the those are the emotions that they are focusing on. In Clone that is Wars what they show him. Like, and we can have an entire episode about the changes that the Clone Wars made. <laughs> and we're going to. to. Yeah, we'll <laughs> have an we entire will. episode about the Clone Wars and the impact that it had on the prequels and the changes they made. So that we don't have to get into that here because that is an entire episode in and of itself. Um, but. Um, just to finish off episode three, we do see Anakin refusing to make different choices, even when told by other people that he is supposed to trust that he still can. Like, even after he's committed a genocide, he still could, you know, make different choices, and he's just refusing to. Yeah, he's at that sunk cost fallacy, right? He has decided that he has dug his hole so deep that he cannot get himself out again. So he's continuing to dig the hole even deeper. He's so smart. Mm-hmm. There is some of so that, smart. and there is, I think, also <laughs> supposed to be that he's he's in it now, and it's some of it is feeling good, right? Like, the power, the dark side is kind of, he's let it in, He's it's starting to feel a little bit good, and he wants more, you know? And that's kind of like um, what the dark side does, right? You're never satisfied. And, you know, this is where you get the things about, like, it's his new empire, right? Like, he wants yes. that empire, he wants to kill Palpatine and take it and it's not really about saving Padme anymore towards the end um obviously he he chokes her um and tries to kill her by the end but like it it kind of I mean it never really is about Padme it is about Anakin not wanting to live without her but um so he's not doing it for her but like by the end it kind of shifts away from even 
that much. It's not even about not wanting to live without her. And it starts to become about, I want the power. And that's the same thing that happens to Dooku, right? That Dooku might have been um, noble in some of his uh, reasons for leaving and his disillusionment with Republic, but that by the time we get to the Phantom Menace, it's not really about saving the Republic or the people anymore. He's literally starting a galactic civil war, you know, um, and, you know, you continue to see that through Clone Wars as well, but um, that it is now just about power and wanting power. And you see that happen with Anakin too, that mm-hmm. he has kind of succumbed to greed and selfishness more than anything else. And the compassion that might have once led him in a previous, you know, in previous years uh, is just gone. It's just not there anymore. It's no longer leading him. What what little is left is being crushed. There is a really interesting juxtaposition in Revenge of the Sith where immediately after yeah. Anakin kills the Separatist leaders, while crying, by the way, there's like a scene of him like looking out over the river and like looking extremely upset, like looking like he is just as upset as he was when the temple, when he decided to go after Palpatine and like stop him from dying. And then it's immediately mm-hmm. followed by the scene where he is looking like high on power with Obi-Wan and Padme. Like when she comes in, he just looks so excited to see her. And then like, he just immediately goes off to this like long rant about like how the power he has now and how great everything is. And it's such an interesting scene. I think in the novelization, they go into it a little bit where they talk about how the, the, their interpretation is that he has spent the time in between those scenes basically sinking deeper into the darkness so he doesn't have to feel what he's feeling he doesn't have to feel the devastation of what he has wrought and it's such a fun mm. little disposition and i want to pick lucas's brain about it <laughs> yeah there's obviously a lot of stuff about revenge of the sith that got like a little bit changed and you know things that got cut and didn't make it in because like it would have been a five-hour movie if it was a had... long movie it's a long movie as it is and there's yeah. still so much that got cut from it um but, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's like Anakin is, even at this point where, you know, he's in this in-between kind of limbo where he's already committed a lot of acts, but he still seems to regret it, is still making the choice to just sink further into it rather than make any different choices. Padme shows up, Obi-Wan shows up, they give him chance after chance after chance to, ch- to change his mind, and he just refuses it every time. And I think, you know, that's why choice to me is such, like, a really important theme and message within not just this trilogy, but obviously the entire six film arc um, Mm -hmm. is that it's always about choice. You know, Anakin is not being like possessed by the dark side and forced to do this. You know, Palpatine is not making choices for him. It's not the Jedi fucking him up so much that he can't make another choice. It's not inevitable. Anyway. Yeah. Just that like, it's always Anakin's choice. He is making choices the whole time. (laughs) And I think that's really important to remember. And that a lot of like Anakin fans, not Faye, but like the weird ones. <laughs> I am a perfectly um, normal Stanikin. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, well, you are not what people would normally call a Stanikin. You are one of the regular Stanikin fans who likes him yeah. and recognizes that, like, he is, you know, making a lot he of terrible does, choices. He does make bad choices. He makes really bad yeah, choices. Yeah, that he made bad choices. They him. are his choice. My sad little trash yeah. can okay. son who gets stuffed into a trash can for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah. Um,. But, like, a lot of the, the Stanikins, you know, will, like, refuse to give Anakin any agency and recognize that he's the one making the awful choices uh, that he's making. Which is just less fun as a character. It's less fun. It's less interesting. It's it's less complex. And it doesn't really fit into the themes of choice. When we're talking about choice, what's interesting, too, yeah. is, like, in the scene with Padme and Obi-Wan, 
they also have choices here. Padme and Obi-Wan could both choose to go with Anakin and to fall into this place of darkness. Padme has done it before. She has allowed Anakin to get away with murder before and fall to the dark side before, and Mm -hmm. she has accepted it. So she couldn't make that choice again. And this scene, she chooses not to. She chooses to reject the darkness and continue towards the light. And that is what allows the twins to be born and ultimately take down the Emperor. And Obi-Wan, by making the choice to not go with Anakin, even though he could, even though he loves Anakin so much, he chooses to reject the dark yet again. And which also allows him to teach Luke the bare minimum and keep Luke alive for the next 20 years so that him and Leia can take down the Emperor. Like, it's such a fun... And more specifically, that that Obi-Wan has to choose to let Anakin go so much so that he yeah. can kill Anakin, or at least that he, he maims Anakin, mostly, but that he, he can leave Anakin behind to die. And, like, that's the very specific choice he's making, right, is to let go of his his memory of what Anakin has been and to sort of accept what Anakin is now enough that he can do what must be done. I would argue that he doesn't let him go because if he truly let him go, he would have mercy killed him on the side of the river. He can't kill him at that point. He can't let him go fully. I don't think he lets him go until the Kenobi series. That is the point where he fully lets go of who Anakin used to be to him. But at the end of Revenge of the Sith, he is still holding on to that. He is choosing to go with the light, but he is still holding on to who Anakin used to be. And that's why he can't kill him completely he leaves him to die but he leaves the choice up to the fates he does i'm I'm kind of trying to view the movie without the context of the kenobi show because obviously it would have been made without the context of the kenobi show um so it has to work without it and so i think within the context of the movie as it would have needed to be written for the fans uh, for the viewers like i think you are supposed to understand that this is the moment where he's choosing to let go um by walking away that yes he's not going to mercy kill anakin but that, you know, Anakin is clearly dead anyway. And I mean, he couldn't have seen Palpatine coming. He, Palpatine is supposed to be getting killed by Yoda at this point. Um, so, like, yes, he can't make the last blow, but also Anakin is dying anyway. Um, and I think it's just this moment of, like, walking away, right? That, like, you know, narratively, Obi-Wan cannot make the, the mercy kill. It's just, he's, he, he can't. You know, Darth Vader just has to survive. <laughs> Um, and so they had to kind of come up with a way for Obi-Wan to win and escape while still, you know, um, allowing Anakin to survive. Um, and so it does leave us with this kind of odd little moment where he, he does not mercy kill Anakin. Um, people have argued that, like, would it be a mercy kill, though, if Anakin isn't asking for it? You know, that Anakin is yelling i hate you he doesn't seem to want to die in the moment and so would it actually be a mercy kill or would it be an execution yeah that's fair would and would obi-wan interesting and would obi-wan killing him in that moment be more akin to anakin killing dooku earlier you know where anakin cannot fight back anymore you know like he is effectively completely unable to to defend himself now and so obi-wan making that last blow would make him more of an executioner and so he makes the opposite choice in the dooku scene the choice is do i take this person in to be prosecuted for their crimes or do i execute them as the person who is in charge of the republic is telling me to and so like yes the correct choice as anakin immediately identifies afterwards would defend to take dooku in to execute for his crimes but in a situation with anakin there's three choices here he could kill him he could leave him to die or he could take him with him and he chooses 
to leave him there. There isn't like an actual clear, correct choice in the situation. Like the kind thing to do would have been to kill him because he is clearly suffering and is going to die in a lot of pain the way that he is. And possibly the correct thing to do would have been to take him with him to get him treated and answer for his crimes in some shape or form. Because as far as Obi-Wan knows, Yoda has defeated Palpatine. Like that is the plan, right? So him... It's arguably the plan, yeah. He is leaving him to die as the choice that is the one that he can bear to do. He can't bear to bring him back and be responsible for him anymore. He can't bear to kill him. So he leaves him. I think what what has ended up interesting about this scene, I don't know if it was intentional or not, is that kind of like we're finding in our discussion here is that you might be able to view it a number of different ways. You know, you could see it as Obi-Wan kind of almost letting the darkness take him for a second and intentionally leaving Anakin to burn and suffer because he's angry and upset. You could see it as Obi-Wan choosing to let go by just sort of walking away and, you know, choosing not to take responsibility at all, you know, refusing to be an executioner, but also refusing to do anything else that he just lets go of Anakin's hold on his life and, and leaves him. And and you could kind of view it as somewhere in between, right? That Obi-Wan just can't bear to make that last move. He can't bear to be responsible. So he just sort of sits in this limbo. Um, but it, it is left ambiguous enough that you can, I think you can interpret it a couple of different ways and, and have it remain relatively in character. I think the one that allows his narrative to kind of be the most satisfying is that he's letting go because, you know, without the context of the Kenobi show, which wouldn't have existed at the time or, you know, like it, it needs to work without any extra context. Yeah. But there's and 20 so years he, between this movie and the next one. So you can easily be like, okay, so in the project time in between, he has let this go and like separated this out into his mind as people figured out in fan fiction. <laughs> yes. But I think, in terms of actual good writing, like, there's a reason he kills Padme in this and doesn't just say, oh, well, obviously she died somewhere in between in order to make Leia's comment still make sense. Like, he recognized that Padme needs to die so that her arc can come to an end and it doesn't just sort of peter off into the in-between realm, you know, between the two films. And so I think, you know, in order for this to be considered a relatively good written, satisfying ending for Obi-Wan, we have to assume that, like, he has chosen to let go of Anakin by the end of the fight, you know, and that walking away is him letting go. Obviously, if you take it with the context of the Kenobi show now, you can view it differently because he gets that um, uh, conclusion later. But I think if we pretend that that doesn't exist and just look at the film as it would have been written to exist at the time on its own, it's not as satisfying if he's like in limbo. And you're just like, oh, yeah, the conclusion to his arc happens off screen. You know, that's it's not the most satisfying way to end his arc if you never get to see it. No, that's um, We do have to wrap this up. Okay. Are you ready? I'm taking over. Okay. Um, right. Sugar. Yeah. With the prequels. What, like, with absolutely no context. You cannot go into detail. I trust you. <laughs> I wouldn't, what, but okay. like... Two or three things that worked for you, what do you think they could have improved on? Well, I think Obi-Wan worked. Um, okay. We, we said last time that Obi-Wan was my favorite character. I do think Obi-Wan is probably arguably the best character in the prequels, one of the ones that worked the best, um, and, and probably is one of the most fun to watch. Um, as a kid, I think the costumes probably got me into it more than anything else. 
The costumes um, are so excellent. The costumes are excellent in this movie. Um, and they really kind of, you know, feel very fantastical and adds to the sort of science fantasy feel of this uh, um, series. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just going to say that the Jedi themselves, I think, were an incredible choice in, in the way that they are portrayed. Obviously, this was a controversial choice because a lot of people understood the Jedi to be different, you know, that they were supposed to be like knights instead of Buddhist warrior monks. But I'm going to say fuck everyone who thinks it was a bad choice. Jedi are great. <laughs> I think this is um, the best choice that could have been made for them. They are wonderful. Um, I do think that there is a lot of uh, sexism and racism throughout this entire series that does cause it to be um, very uncomfortable and frustrating sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, there's a lot of extraneous things happening in the prequels. I think he bit off a little more than he could chew. Um, with, uh, like you were mentioning before, how complex and how stuffed these films are with uh, plot and details that don't quite get enough time to get explained in a way that always makes sense. And so things feel kind of choppy um, and uh, underexplored throughout the the series. And you have to do a little bit of extra homework to kind of pick up on some of the things uh, that happen and connect them together. Yeah. And I'm going to leave it there. Excellent. I love that. Thank you. Angela. Yes. Things that you liked, things that maybe could use some more work. I know that you both have spent a lot of time talking about how you could fix the prequels. And unfortunately, we don't have time to get into that. We do not. (laughs) Things that I liked. I liked the Star Wars. I liked the lightsabers. And I liked the Jedi. (laughs) I didn't like the racism. Okay, great. <laughs> this is a good opinion that you have. <laughs> I love that first one. I like the Star Wars. I like the Star like Wars. The there Star were Wars. Star Wars, and they were in the stars, and they were great. Oh, actually, really quick. Were the, mm-hmm. This is the best thing in the entire trilogy. You ready? The best thing in the entire trilogy okay. is the sound effect from Django Fett's bombs that he goes boom. Those, <laughs> that sound effect should have won an Emmy. And an Oscar and a Tony all by themselves. <laughs> just just, just the sound effect all by itself. I whoever made that sound effect deserves to have like beautiful chocolate on their shelf forever. Because they were so <laughs> they were so smart. That's such a beautiful sound effect. That's that's my conclusion. I love that. I cannot wait to go find that sound effect. It's so that I know what the fuck you're talking it's about. It's a fantastic <laughs> sound effect. You'll love it. Maybe I'll play it in this track so everybody can remember what this gorgeous sound effect sounds like. Ugh. I love that for us. Editor Angela here. I have found and I'm adding in this sound effect. Warning for your ears. Shout out to what appears to be Ben Burt as the Sound designer, film director, editor, screenwriter, blah, 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 blah. Ben Hell Burt, yeah. if you're out there, please know that you have my undying affection. <laughs> Whatever you need, no, please I'll still be there. <laughs> Gosh, sugar. Wow. It says he is notable for popularizing the Wilhelm scream in joke. So Good for I, you, buddy. I looked well into that a lot. the voice of R2-D2, the lightsaber hum, the heavy breathing sound of Darth Vader, He's creating the Ewok so language. Oh my, oh my god. He has given you a lot. Wow. Wow. And to close the this out, would you guys like my, my favorite goat fact today? 
Yes, please. Are you ready? Goats have yes. very sensitive yes. lips. That makes sense to me. They use it to mouth it things in search of clean and tasty food. Oh, good for them. Good for goats. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent ending. Beautiful. Goodbye, everyone. We did so well. <laughs> Our intro and outro music is Moss Isley Cantina by Speedkicks. Angela and I edit. Our artwork is by me, and Sugar is our writer and researcher. You can find us on Instagram and Tumblr at Unleash the Goats. Thanks for listening. <laughs>